This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They're not going home anymore. When they make the crossing, this time, they've come to stay. In this podcast, we're coming ashore with one of the first shockwaves of a brutal new invader. Specialists in smash-and-grab raids across the British Isles. The Vikings had a bloody reputation for plundering and pillaging. In the 9th century, things took a turn for the worst. They landed, but this time they had come to stay, to colonise and lay claim to the land, bringing with them their gods of thunder and war. These Viking warriors became part of the British Isles forever. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Last week you took us to Lindisfarne, an island where the first bloody fingerprints of the Vikings are to be found. A place some people think is King Arthur's Avalon. Where are we this week? Well, we're quite a long way away from Avalon, and indeed Lindisfarne. We've travelled to a place that, well, once again, breathtaking beauty. Uh, Really heart-stopping beauty, but with a dark, brutal past. Sitting off Orkney mainland, right up there on the northeast tip of Scotland, is a little tidal island. A tidal island like Lindisfarne, but unique in its own way. And the story there helps write an important chapter in the history of the British Isles. That little tidal islet is called the Broch of Bursay. We're going to Orkney. We've been there before. Uh, very early on in the run, we were at the Ness of Brodgar but we're in the, a place called the Broch of Bursay. It's a, a little tidal island. It's, it's one of these wee places that's a bit schizophrenic, neither one thing nor the other, sometimes connected to the mainland, sometimes not. And the, the Broch of Bursay, it's spelt B-R-O-U-G-H, pronounced Broch, it's good, you can clear your whole chest cavity if you're a Scottish person. Broch of Bursay. And it's very important to know that every place name virtually on Orkney Every river, every hillock, every place has an, a Norse name, which is to say Viking. 
Orkney and Shetland are as, are as Viking as they are anything else. And Broch is, uh, is connected quite closely to the Norse word uh, Borg, B-O-R-G, which means a, a fortress. Uh, it's also connected to Borough, which is a, a more familiar word in, in Scotland and in the whole of Britain, you know, meaning a fortified town or a fortified place. It's also, uh, in Scotland, up in the northeast, there, there were there's archaeological remains of structures called brochs, B-R-O-C-H, and they're, they're these enigmatics of cooling tower-shaped masonry towers that had some kind of defensive role, but archaeologists still study them and debate exactly what they were for. Bursi is also Norse. The Norse word, which sounds very similar, but it's spelt differently, means, believe it or not, a patch of land that's connected to the mainland by a narrow strip. It's a very precise, descriptive word. Everything about Broch of Bursi suggests somewhere that was either worth defending or that just by its very nature, spending half the time being cut off by a natural moat, it felt protected. In reality, the Broch of Bursi, if you go there, it's just off the, the western, the northwestern edge of mainland Orkney. At low tide, when the water's away, it's just a few hundred yards of sand. Going slightly uphill, you walk across and you, you go onto this tiny little island. It's a scrap of a thing. It looks like a turf that's been thrown into the sea from a distance. It's so small. A little green swatch of heaven. It's beautiful. On a sunny day, it's the loveliest location. It's one of these wonderful little places. You walk across and you're in the what was once the domain of some of these early Christian hermit-type people. Ah, before the Vikings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the first inhabitants, the first people that, that we know about that made use of the Baroque Bursi were Christian hermits, probably in the, maybe the 500s AD, the 600s AD. Uh, more of these characters that were looking for isolation, looking for somewhere that was away far from the madding crowd. So the Baroque Bursi, like Lindisfarne, was perfect for them, like Iona, a perfect little place on the edge, still within sight of the mainland, but, but separate. Uh, and so these Christian fathers, these, these priests, these preachers were there for a while. But by the 700s and into the maybe the 800s, it was the domain of farmers. It's not a big place, but there was a, a little village there and the farmers would have farmed on the Brock and then they probably also had, had other lands on the, on the mainland, you know, that they could come and go from. Uh, now, these people were what the Romans called Picts. We've said before, the first people to write about the people of the northern third of Britain that eventually became Scotland, uh, the, the, the Romans referred to that place as Caledonia. And the people that they found living there, they called the Picts, which for Romans meant the painted people or the people of the designs. And it quite fascinated the Romans. These were people who either wore body paint or maybe they had tattoos it's hard to say whether it was something that washed off or whether it was something permanent like a tattoo. And it's a soldier's nickname. The way soldiers always do, you know, it's always pejorative. Uh, so when they were saying Picts, it was probably just a, a collective way of them referring to maybe people that they found quite troublesome or incomprehensible in some way. But the farmers uh, on the Broca Bursi uh, would have been of, of the Pictish type. And the Picts on Orkney, would have been the direct descendants of those Neolithic farmers 
that built the stone circles like Stennis and Brodgar and built the Ness of Brodgar and Scarabray. These people that, that we find on the Brocha Bursi in the 700s were more of the same. But for the sake of it, we're calling them Picts because it was the nickname that the, the Romans had applied to them. It's reasonable to imagine, you couldn't be 100% certain, but it's reasonable to imagine that they were also Christian. Because we know that they had, they had replaced on that little swatch of green a Christian community. And it's quite probable that they were also of the Christian faith. But if there ever was a time when they felt that they were safe on this little protected islet, then they were about to get a slap to the face, a splash of cold water, uh, because by the 800s, the Vikings arrived. Now, the Vikings in 793 had arrived in Lindisfarne. That's taken generally as the start point of the Viking presence in the British Isles. But in all likelihood, there had probably been earlier contact with Vikings in other locations. Like hit-and-run attacks? Yeah, I mean, we know about them on Lindisfarne because the people in Lindisfarne were people who could write. And because they were, Lindisfarne had been so important with such a bright light in Christendom, other, other Christians in other parts of the world wrote about what had happened on, on Lindisfarne because it was this terrible, unimaginable atrocity. So it got written about at length and very passionately. But it's possible that Vikings had already done something similar to people elsewhere who simply didn't survive to write it down. But by the 800s, the Vikings were making inroads on Orkney and Shetland. And we see their distinctive fingerprints, if you like, at the Brocha Bursi. If you go there today, you'll see the very distinctive, unmistakable, rectangular foundations of Viking longhouses. Everywhere the Vikings went, they built a very distinctive kind of house. Long and, long and narrow, but a rectangular shape. And th those are visible on the Brocha Bursi now. But archaeological investigation beneath those rectangular longhouses reveals the also distinctive but circular shapes of the cellular houses that the Picts had always been in the habit of building and living in. It's like, if you imagine like a cuckoo in the nest, if you imagine this Pictish community of round houses and then the Vikings come along and like a cuckoo they slap down on top of it their own, their own distinctive form and they took for themselves and repurposed everything of the Pictish community. They reused those roundhouses for buyers and barns and, and workshops. They reused the querns, the, the grinding stones that the Picts had used for grinding their wheat and their barley or whatever. They repurposed the whole place. But they, they had come. They had come to stay. It's a very emphatic declaration, if you like, of Vikings having come not just to pass through as they did at Lindisfarne, smash and grab. At Brocha Bursi, they've come to literally put down roots, build houses and stay. Why did they want to move here? Well, there's a lot of debate goes on about that. The, the Vikings that came to uh, Orkney were from Norway. Other, other Vikings came out of Sweden. Others came from Denmark. Vikings not even really a noun. You can't be a Viking, really. You can go Viking. V Viking's a verb. 
it means in the summertime, these people of Norway and Sweden and Denmark, once they had planted their crops in the spring and they were just waiting through the ripening till harvest time, they would pile aboard their boats and go Viking. And Viking is a word that means, you know, go on a, a seaborne adventure to make yourself rich. <laughs> That's Viking. So, so the Vikings wouldn't have called themselves Vikings. Viking isn't what they were. Viking is what they did. That's the seeds planted. Helga, I'm away Viking. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll see you in the autumn for the harvest. So over they come. Anyone who has been to Norway or, or can picture Norway, it's got a small territory in terms of availability of arable land. There's a lot of Norway you can't use. It's very lovely to look at. You know, the, the fjords and the mountains, and it's all very rugged. But when it comes to getting enough fields for, for families to plant crops, there's a limited amount. And it's generally believed that, amongst other things, by the end of the 8th century, getting into the 9th century, there was population pressure. So younger sons of a family or their elder brothers maybe had inherited the farm and there simply wasn't anywhere for them to be. So they had to find, they had to find other ways to make a living. And so it starts out with them going on these you know, violent smash-and-grab raids, just bringing back people to sell as slaves or whatever other valuables you could round up. But once they got familiar with places like Orkney, like Shetland, and, and, and other places besides in the British Isles, they realised that here was good farming land. So why not? Let's get enough of us together and go and take a bit, drive away the locals and set ourselves up as the residents of that area. And so that's certainly what happened eventually. Maybe they started out coming to Orkney and just raiding the place and, and doing what we always imagine Vikings doing. But eventually, enough of them thought, that's a great place. Let, let's go and stay. On Brochebursid, there was a wonderfully enigmatic discovery made, amongst other things, a Pictish stone. Now, anyone who reads about or studies about around the Picts will learn that they were in the habit of raising standing stones in their territories and then putting very enigmatic and distinctive shapes on them, engraving them. And, you know, our archaeologists and others speculate about what these things, what these signs meant to this day. It's like a language we can't read. But on this, it was smashed when it was found and it's, it's been restored and the originals, uh, I think it's in the National Museums of Scotland in Edinburgh. But there's a, a facsimile, a copy of it on Brochabursi. And, and what it shows, it's rough, roughly hewn thing, but there are some Pictish symbols. So there's what's called a V-rod, which is, as it sounds really, it's a V-shape. There's a, an eagle. There's a disc. And there's also a, a, a beast it's sometimes called the, the Bursi Beast. But to be honest with you, what it really looks like is a swimming elephant. <laughs> if you can imagine an elephant with its trunk up as if it's swimming in the water, who knows what it represents, but this is on the stone. But also, also on the stone is a depiction of three men, in a, all in a row. And each of the three have, has the suggestion of a long hairstyle. They're wearing quite distinctive long robes possibly even crowns on their heads. As you look at it, the one on the, on the right, at the front of the queue, as it were, is bearded. And then at the back, it's a, sort of a, a younger-looking, clean-shaven individual, maybe supposed to suggest a, a young man rather than an older elder. 
but these were representations of some of the people of Brokhabursi, or they represent something about the Pictish people. And as, as far as it goes, they're almost like silent witnesses. They're there on that stone as ghosts, the last of their kind. Sort of illustrative, really, of the way in which outsiders came and replaced everything that had gone before. That was part of what became a pattern. The Vikings, for, a, for decades, just came and went. They came a Viking, and they would take what they could find, and then they would go home again. But there came a point, a kind of a tipping point, where some of them, many of them, decided to come and colonise. So rather than passing through, they had come to stay, and stay they did. Would it just have been men coming? Yes. In the way of these folk movements, since time immemorial, all across Europe, from mostly from east to west, people are moving to this day. You know, when people look at, say, immigrants and migrants, you know, coming across the English Channel, there's quite often a lot of anxiety about the fact that it's young men, 20-something guys. Well, it always is, because they're more likely to be tough enough and strong enough to survive the hardships. And then when, when they come, they, they seek to establish themselves. It's, it's the oldest story in the book, or it's among the oldest stories in the book. So the Vikings that came, I mean, perhaps some of them brought their women folk, but there's something quite, um, really, I, I wouldn't really shy away from using the word sinister about what happened on Orkney, which is to say that the Viking men that came, they seem to have, one way or another, stopped the local Pictish men having anything to do with the local Pictish women. Either they drove them off, drove them out of Orkney, or something else. And obviously genocide's a loaded word, isn't it, in the modern domain? But there are good reasons for thinking that the, the Vikings got rid of the local men so that they could have the local women. Now, we know that because of analysis of DNA of the modern Orcadian population. Most modern Orkney women have Pictish DNA, which, which they've inherited from their mothers all the way down the line. But almost all modern Orkney men have Norse, Scandinavian DNA, which likewise they have inherited from all their male ancestors. Wow. Okay, so, so they're in black and white, as it were. They're in the DNA is evidence that at some point the Pictish men stopped making little Pictish babies with the Pictish women. They were gone. One way or another, they're not there. They're not breeding anymore. And the Viking men are. It was a good question that you ask. So it would appear that you've got shiploads of young men who are coming on a one-way trip. They're not going home anymore. When they make the crossing this time, they've come to stay and so what are you going to do if you're going to stay and have a farm and raise some children? You've got to get yourself a woman. And if there's a competition for the woman, well, there's going to be some bloodshed maybe. It's fascinating. I, years ago now, maybe 07 or 08, I made a television documentary. And it was about the, uh, the People of Britain project. Now, back, back then, the, the, the human genome had only recently been begun to be decoded. It was, it was a new game. 
And the People of Britain project was started out so that scientists could start to get a handle on, on the kind of genetic makeup of the British population, who they, where they had come from, what sort of tribal groups were represented, that kind of thing. And one of the, one of the sort of silverbacks, if you like, of the, of the Human Genome Project was a, a, a fascinating man, Professor Sir Walter Bodmer. And he was, he was right at the forefront of that research. He was great. We had him on the programme. He was quite irascible. He was like quite an irascible academic. I was quite scared of him, <laughs> but, but he was one of... Maybe he was a Viking. <laughs> maybe, but no, but he, he was certainly, he was, he was right at the forefront of that DNA research. And so we were able, with his help and with the, with the help of that People of Britain project, we were able to collect samples, blood samples and, and DNA samples from people all over Britain. It was spread all over so that we could analyse the or Professor Sir Walter Bodmer's team could analyse this DNA and, get, and find out what everybody was made of. And so volunteers came forward and there were people that for all sorts of reasons believed that they had all sorts of fascinating family histories. So we had people that were sure that they were Anglo-Saxons or, or they were sure that they were descended from Huguenots. But by far and away, the most devoted group were the ones that thought they were Vikings. There's also a, there's a fascinating, the number of them that came forward with a, a mild deformity of their hands it's called Deproitin's contracture, but it's traditionally described as Viking claw. And what happens for people who've got, you know, Viking claw or Deproitin's contracture is that their, their fingers get kind of pulled in towards their palms in extreme forms. And, and nowadays there are surgeries and, and procedures that you can do to alleviate it. But obviously in the past, people would have ended up with their hands quite claw-like. So it's called Viking. And it was believed it was believed that this, that if you had Deproitin's contracture, that you were descended from Vikings. In fact, it's a condition, it's a mild deformity that affects people all over Northern Europe. It's nothing to do with Scandinavia specifically. So we had people coming forward with Deproitin's contracture and they said, I must be a Viking because I've got you know th th this condition in my hand. And I can tell you, we would, we would do the sample and we would get it analysed. And then it, and almost always we had to tell them that they weren't Vikings. And I swear to you, it was like delivering the worst medical news ever because they had, they had believed all their lives and their families believed that they were descended from swine's fork beard or, you know, or Ivar the Boneless or something. And, and it, was, it was fascinating to me because the Vikings had this very violent reputation. To say they had a bit of a dodgy backstory is to put it mildly. Uh, but but none but nonetheless there was this passionate belief. A lot to this people are very passionate in their hope that they are descended from these warlike, vagabond, nomadic figures that burst onto the British scene in the eight hundreds and nine hundreds. But the people in Orkney would have been Viking stock. Well, it's yes, they were. Where we got the results that, that showed that people were Viking was was men who were coming forward from Orkney and Shetland. But they already knew they were Viking. I mean, up there they had long family lineages with the right surnames and they had, you know, they had family histories that told them that they had these Norse connections. I mean, the fact is up there, as I said, you know, there's the, every place name is Norse. Kirkwall, Ness of Brodgar, all, all these place names, they're, they're, they've got all their roots are in Norse and it's, it's another indication of the extent to which when the... When those Vikings arrived and settled and, and, and built up their numbers, they renamed everything. All their farms, every hill. 
But funnily enough, strangely enough, the only survivor from the, from the years before is Orkney. Orkney is not Norse. Now, once the Vikings had taken over, they called the place Orkney Yar. So that's like the word Orkney, but with J-A-R on the end. Orkney Yar. That's what they called it. Now, in Norse, there's, there's two parts of that. Orkney and Yar. And that means the island of the seals, as in the mammals that swim in the sea. But just as those Vikings came and reused the Pictish houses and they reused the Pictish grinding stones and everything else they could lay their hands on, they probably repurposed the old name that the people had for Orkney. So when they turned up and said, what do you people call this place? They heard Orkney. It sounded to them a bit like Seal Island. But Orkney, the original name, has its roots believe it or not, in the word for a pig, or or maybe more attractively, a boar, like a wild boar. The Roman word for Orkney was connected to the word for wild boars, uh, and elsewhere, older languages refer to as Inishork, which is the island of the boar, the island of the pig. Now, there's lots of reasons for thinking that the Pictish populations on Orkney, and going way back, right back into the Neolithic period, the tribes might have had totems, by which they identified themselves. So you might have had people that identified themselves by the, by the eagle or by the otter or by the fox. But then you would get people that identified themselves by the wild boar. And they may have been the dominant group. And so Orkney was called the island of the wild boars. So ironically, for a place that's lost all vestige, really, everything Pictish was scrubbed away like chalk dust off a blackboard except Orkney, which only survived by chance because it sounded to those Vikings a bit like the Island of the Seals. So that's what they ended up calling it. I love Orkney. I love the whole place because it's not like anywhere else. It's part of Scotland now, but it doesn't feel like the rest of Scotland. Neither does it feel like Scandinavia. It just feels like Orkney. It's a place with a unique identity and a unique character and a unique presence. So everything about it in that collection of islands up there is just singular. It's only like Orkney and there's nowhere else like it. But part of the fascination for someone like me who's interested in in history and in archaeology is this amazing story of the way in which a group of invaders came and took control of the place, as they did in much of the rest of Britain. You know, the Vikings made inroads all over the place and never went away again. And it's very, very interesting to just get a, a tiny case study. You know, you go to the Brocha Bursi and you just see it there before your eyes. You know, you see the Viking long houses plunked down on top of whatever had gone before. And then you you hear the place names and you just, you see the way in which those Vikings took over and repurposed and reused everything. And they made the women their own as well. So that what had been a Pictish, British, Scottish place became Viking, became Norse and, and was to remain so for hundreds of years to come. 
So it was a violent beginning, but it led to them becoming part of the story and the makeup of the British Isles. Yeah, there's always understandable sensitivities and anxieties for people. No one likes the idea of being invaded, or indeed, no one likes the idea of their culture being replaced by another culture. But it is very much the human story. It has happened again and again and again. Ultimately, we are temporary tenants of rented accommodation. I mean, really, one way or another, everyone in Britain for thousands of years has come from somewhere else. At the end of the Ice Age, you know, 12,000 years ago, when the place became habitable again for, for human beings, it had been empty. It was a blank slate for humankind. So whoever arrived here, first of all, those hunters, they were from outside. And then the farmers came. The farmers came to Orkney, as they came to everywhere else. Five, six thousand years ago, they came in from outside in all likelihood. And so what had been a place for the hunters became a place of farmers from outside. And those farmers were there. And then Christianity came in the form of those those travelling bands of of Christian hermits who came looking for isolated places. The Romans came, the the Anglo-Saxons came, the Vikings came, and so on and so on and so on. What what was quite fascinating at the time when we did the People of Britain project was the number of people, north, south, east and west, whose DNA revealed that they were from what you would really have to describe as the indigenous population of the British Isles. Which is to say, the first lot, those hunters that walked in, that walked in 10, 12,000 years ago, their DNA was still there in the majority of the people that we tested. So the number of incomers was, was always quite small. Their impact culturally might be significant, but their actual, the physical number of them had never really been enough to dilute the resident population. So not enough Romans came, for example, to turn the to turn the population Roman in terms of their DNA. And likewise, not enough Vikings came in, although in isolated pockets, you know, like Orkney and Shetland, where you get that story of a seeming genocide. It, it wasn't the case, you know, that there has been a stubborn survival of the genetic stock of the the indigenous first settlers of the British archipelago. It's still there. It's still there in me. You know, I got my DNA tested and what we found was that the DNA that I had inherited from my mum was DNA of a sort that had been in the west of Scotland basically since forever. I mean, just, it had always been there. It was just, it was was like, you know, it was like page one of of the genetic book. And then ironically, my dad's DNA was Persian. <laughs> so so my dad's is Scottish is Scottish, but somewhere, some little twisted threads of, of the DNA that I inherited from him had markers. They're called markers. And some of those markers had probably come out of Persia, Iran, that part of the world. But maybe, I mean, we could be talking 8,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. But nonetheless, so I'm a mix. So genetically, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm living proof of that kind of the stubborn uh, survival of the oldest stock mixed at some point or spliced as though with a cutting from another plant with, with, some, with some genetic stock from the Middle East. 
Why do we so love the Vikings? Why do we want to be a Viking? Well, I think there's a, a, a drama and a romance about them. Because they were extraordinary. You know, the, the Norwegian Vikings, the men who, who went Viking from Norway, it, it, was, it was their lot who came into the north of Scotland and maybe went round the west coast toward the island of Ireland. The Danish men who went Viking from Denmark, they're the group that came into, say, the east coast of England and started coming in and challenging the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the Heptarchy. The Swedish Vikings, they went into the Baltic Sea all the way across to the mouths of the Russian rivers, the Volga and the rest, and they took their longships down those rivers right into the European mainland out there. And there's every reason to think that the Swedish Vikings may have been in China. They were certainly in Constantinople, Byzantium, modern Istanbul. Wow. Because there's, there's Viking graffiti in the Hagia Sophia, the great church-come-mosque that's in Istanbul. There's graffiti inside the Hagia Sophia that basically says, Ivan was here. <laughs> Literally. So they were travellers, explorers, pioneers, par excellence. They had this wonderful way of getting around because their longships were fantastic at sea, but they were also small enough and they were manned by a big enough crew that when they ran out of water, they just picked them up and portaged them across to the next lake or the next river and got back in them and carried on. So as long as your crew remained fit and healthy, there was no reason to stop anywhere. You, you could go anywhere if you had the mindset. And, the, and those Viking men had the mindset. And of course, of course, famously, there's every reason, there's proof that some Vikings were in North America, that they had managed to get across from Norway, island hopping. You know, so you would go, say, to, I don't know, to go to Shetland first, take a breather, go on to Iceland, take a breather, and press on Greenland, and then eventually you get to northern North America. And there are, there's archaeological evidence of Viking settlement, longhouses on the east coast of North America. And this is in the 800s. Columbus didn't cross the Atlantic until 1492. But the Vikings had already been there hundreds of years before. So there's great romance around them. And it's, of course, we think of Vikings as being all rape and pillage, which they undoubtedly did. But these were unbelievably violent times. Everyone was raping and pillaging. There was violence meted out to all and sundry by everyone against everyone. The Vikings had the misfortune, if you like, to be illiterate. You know, they didn't have reading and writing in a world that was already literate. So they were attacking Christian communities who, after they'd gone, could write about what a dreadful bunch of monsters the Vikings were. But the Vikings didn't leave behind any kind of counter-argument. So we've got a one-sided portrayal of the Vikings as though they were the only people at that time who were running about with swords. There's plenty of evidence of Vikings running afoul of the locals and getting beheaded and their butchered bodies getting piled into mass graves. I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence of Viking landings on the British mainland that went badly wrong for those Vikings and they end up in bits. So, you know, they, they got some of what they dished out as well. We have this disproportionate idea of them being excessively violent. They were violent men, and they did terrible things, but so did everyone else. But it's also wrapped up in this other picture of them being great pioneers 
extraordinary explorers, seamen. I mean, they had crafted ships with hulls and keels and rudders that could take them anywhere in the world. Extraordinary mariners. The explorations that they undertook were just, I mean, mind-blowing. The bravery, the intrepid nature. So, as far as that goes, it's no wonder that people think, I wish I was a Viking. the great heathen army, resting, ready to sweep across the kingdoms of the British Isles, a place that mattered long before England was even conceived of as a country, where a warrior, buried with his mighty sword, is found heading for Valhalla. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles, Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research was by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production was at Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.